Hi, Eric Goldwine here from LTCCC's Nursing Home 411 podcast. We've got a great episode ahead, but before you listen, I need you to do us a favor. Please take 30 seconds and subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash long-term care community coalition, or use the link in the show notes. Here on our channel, you'll find some incredibly valuable LTCCC video content, including webinars, segments from our podcast, including this one. You'll get to check out our family empowerment programs, and that's for families uh, and friends of nursing home residents. And you'll even find some live music uh, from Bridget St. John and Steve Gunn, uh, incredibly talented musicians who performed at our annual event. So again, please subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash long-term care community coalition. And that link will be in the show notes. On this episode, we're going to play a little What's the Difference Between with LTCCC's Executive Director, Richard Mollett. We'll talk about the difference between practical and practicable well-being. We'll talk about ombudsman versus surveyors, and we'll break down the nursing home scope and severity grid for surveyors and discuss the difference between harm and no harm citations. Check out the show notes for important links, including to our YouTube channel, you better have already signed up, and some of the resources mentioned on the show. Thanks to LTCCC policy researcher Stefan Foster for producing the episode, and thanks to you all for listening. Hope you enjoy, and here's our music by Silverman Sound Studios. Welcome to the Nursing Home 411 podcast. I know it's been a minute, but we're back. I am here with uh, LTCCC's Executive Director, Richard Mollett, uh, who's going to help us uh, go through some issues in, in nursing homes and explain some, uh, some things that people tend to mix up, including myself, and help provide some clarity, whether you're a resident, whether you're a family member, whether you're an ombudsman, or whether you're someone who uh, is, is just interested in these issue. So, uh, oh, hello, Richard. Welcome. It's good Hi, to have so you much. back. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, been a, it's been a few months, but without further ado, let's, uh, let's get this one started. And this is an important question we're going to start because it's at the heart of resident <laughs> rights. Richard is, is uh, oh, we're on video now, so you yes. can actually see this. Richard is really excited about this. I feel like uh, I'm in the cash cab. It's very, very <laughs> exciting. A lot of pressure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It, there's nothing like nursing home reform law that, that, that really gets you pumped up. That's but true. the nursing home reform law requires that every resident is provided the care and quality of life services sufficient to attain and maintain their highest practicable, physical, emotional, and social well-being. Now, this word practicable, it sounds a lot like another word, practical, but these words are uh, have entirely different meanings, and Richard is going to explain to us the difference between practicable and practical. Great. Well, well, well thanks so much. I mean, this is, you know, it, it sounds really like a wonky question, uh, at least it does to me, and, and I've always felt that when I talk to families and stuff like that, like what's practical, what's practicable, uh, they do sound so much, uh, so much alike. So practical as we commonly, you know, is the word, of course, we commonly use, and Practical means, you know, this is what um, works in the given situation. So if I am thinking about what is practical for me to do as a, um, you know, as a person of my age and my 
my health status, I think, you know, taking a walk a mile is a practical thing for me to do. Um, running a marathon is not a practical thing for me to do. And it's really based, uh, what's practical is based upon me as the individual or the entity and what, uh, what, what I can do and uh, what I want to do to some extent. Practicable, which as Eric said, is repeated over and over and over again in terminology for the federal nursing home reform law and the requirements and the federal guidance to implement those requirements for nursing home care. Highest practicable is, is constantly used and that means what the resident is able to achieve, what is practicable for them as an individual. So it's practical, I would say, in this situation um, would refer to what is more practical for the nursing home based upon what their goals are in terms of profits, what their uh, goals are in terms of how much they want to spend on certain you know, care staffing or food or, or uh, activities, et cetera. But practicable um, in the law directs the nursing home and essentially requires the nursing home to be focusing on the resident and what he or she is able to achieve and what he or she wants to achieve, what, what, what their personal goals are. And it's, of course, one reason why we exist, one reason why the ombudsman and the state surveyors and the whole system of oversight uh, exists is because too much nursing home care is not very good. But this foundation in the law, and as I said, it's repeated over and over again with various standards and various federal guidance for those standards. So it's really in there, is that the facility is supposed to be looking and holistically looking at the resident and what his or her needs are, um, what they are capable of achieving, uh, as I mentioned before, what their goals are, and together providing the services, including enough staff, including appropriate food, nutritional services, recreational services, activity services, social work services, to, to ensure that that happens. And it's it's very challenging. I know, you know, I've done programs, with, as I said, for families over the years, and, and sometimes family members get upset because it's their experience or that, the experience of their loved ones is so different from this. But essentially what I always tell people, and again, it's challenging. That's why, uh, you know, that's why we do what we do and, and try to inform the residents and families and those working with them is that the what is practicable for the nursing home resident is required to be based upon two things. One is the uh, resident assessment, and the other is the care plan for the resident that is required to be based upon that assessment. And a shameless plug here is that we have some really good, I think, some really good fact sheets on this to help people understand their rights and what their expectations should be with the resident assessment and what their rights are and expectations um, should be for the care planning within the facility, including, again, residents' goals, their cultural background, the kinds of food they like to eat, when they like to get up or go, or, or when they like to shower, whether they like to shower or bathe, excuse me, how often they like to do that, um, what their goals are in terms of walking, in terms of ambulation, in terms of maybe regaining strength, et cetera, that that is part of the, of the assessment. And the care plan, again, has to be based upon that. And that's a those are really good pressure points 
I think, for residents and families to, to know that they can utilize and have rights integrated in them, and that those rights, when they're implemented, ensure in the assessment and care plan can help to uh, achieve truly um, highest practicable resident-centered care. Thanks. And again, just to, just to re reiterate, this is it has to do with the highest practicable physical, emotional, and psychosocial well well-being. Yeah. Um, so I just wanted to clarify that. Now I'm going to bring in our our policy intern uh, and uh, and producer of of this episode of the Nursing Home Four One One Podcast, who's going to edit us and make us uh, sound and look a lot better, Stephen Foster, uh, who's going to ask this next question. Thanks, Eric. When I volunteered in nursing homes, I would often be asked what an ombudsman was and what the difference was between the ombudsman and health department surveyors. That's that's a really it's a really interesting question. Of course, you know, at our organization, we tend to get very much into the weeds, so to speak, and and we deep take deep dives into the data and deep dives into the law and the re regulations, et cetera. So it's really interesting to hear that. And I think um, part of me just wants to, you know, I, I want to say that it shouldn't be the residents or even the family members' responsibility to have to know the, you know, so much about the law and the rules and who's who. It should be that they have a right uh, and they are getting the care and the services they need. But it's a, it is a really important question because both the ombudsman and the state surveyors are um, are there. They share a similar goal in terms of uh, improving care, holding providers accountable for safety and resident dignity, uh, for good services, et cetera. They both, both the uh, state surveyor and the long-term care ombudsman, they, are, um, they undertake their role under federal authority. Um, so in the, um, in the state surveyor, that's under the authority of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which contracts with, with each of the states to do surveys, which is another word for inspection. So survey is an inspection, a surveyor is an inspector, just to be, just to be clear, and a state inspector here. And then the Amazon program ex, uh, it exists under the Older Americans Act. And so there are some uh, important distinctions. A surveyor is uh, and the survey team because nursing homes usually have um, are visited by a survey team for their annual survey. Um, the survey team is responsible for regulatory oversight. Uh, so it's the survey team in the survey state survey office, um, which has the authority to uh, to cite a facility for substandard care or or neglect or abuse and to penalize that facility. And penalties can take a number of different forms. Perhaps we'll talk about that another time. You know, most of us think of a penalty as being a fine. You know, let's say you're fined $1,000 or something like that. But a penalty can take many, many different forms. And they, I think, always come with some kind of what's called a plan of correction. So the surveyor has the authority to do all those things, to, uh, to actually cite a facility, and to hold it accountable in some way for poor care um, or for abuse or neglect or, or other violations of the federal rules. What the ombudsman does do is a bit different. So they also are, again, are working to improve care, uh, to make sure that the standards are in place and implemented 
for all the residents in a facility, but the ombudsman does not have a regulatory authority. They can't penalize a facility. They cannot um, officially, you know, they, they cannot um, officially, I guess, I'm sorry, tell a facility what they should and shouldn't do. But the ombudsman are typically there, you know, hopefully on, uh, on a weekly basis, you know, at least they require, they should be in a facility on a quarterly basis. There are posters generally in uh, nursing homes and in assisted living, adult, other adult care facilities for the state ombudsman. And they tend to be um, people who can help residents and families to navigate with the facility, to navigate challenges that they have. And some of those challenges can be um, um, serious, you know, such as if a resident is not getting the care that they that they need, or they could be, I hate to say less serious, but uh, a little bit more um, uh, maybe temporal in nature, such as, you know, the food is always cold or the call bells aren't ringing. Now, it's important to note that because both the nursing home surveyors and the ombudsman are trying to are working to improve care and to ensure that residents' rights under the nursing home reform law, under state law, et cetera, are being realized for those residents, they both have the same goals and are working essentially from the same playbook. Um, and they both could be come in, they, they both could be called in for the same problem. Um, so one does not exclude the other, but I would say the ombudsmen tend to be uh, in the facility much more often. They're much more resident-centered in what they do, and they tend to be much more active in the facility with helping residents, whereas the surveyor is really stepping back, evaluating the facility, identifying problems, and then um, doing more, having more of a citation and regulatory compliance role. So uh, I hope that that makes sense. It can be confusing. And again, it's really, I think, important to note that they both could, you know, you could have a problem that you bring both to the ombudsman and to the state surveyor or the state survey office, usually a state department of health, and the ombudsman can actually help you file a complaint with the state surveyor. Great. Uh, thanks for the question, Stefan. And yes, and thank you, Richard. We're going to, uh, our last thank question of today's uh, of this episode of what's the difference is going to focus on harm versus no harm you might have if you've read some of our materials or heard some of our uh, ltccc's webinars you might have heard about harm no harm you might have heard something like a scope severity grid uh, a, a g level citation an l level citation and it's what the heck are we even talking about this question is going to be a a, what are these citations and what's the difference between a harm level citation, a no harm level citation, and an immediate jeopardy citation? Um, that's, that's a great question. It is, it does feel very complex, I think, from someone coming from the outside. I know it was to me when I, when I first started, uh, but it, there are things that I think are helpful for residents and families and ombudsmen and people working with residents families to understand here. So essentially, uh, as I mentioned before, the state surveyors, um, they come in and they, there are two ways in which the surveyors come in. One is through an annual inspection and every nursing home in the country is that's, that's licensed under Medicare and Medicaid 
is required to have uh, to be inspected, excuse me, between a nine and 15 month period with the average being annually, being every 12 months in each state. And so there is the annual inspection, as we call it, and there's also complaint investigations. As I mentioned before, you know, a, um, a, the, the resident, the resident's family members, staff people, um, even ombudsman uh, and others can file a complaint. The complaint could be anonymous uh, with the state survey agency, the state, generally state Department of Health or Department of Public Health. And the state has to um, respond to that uh, in different ways and actually different ways based upon this scope and severity met, uh, matrix, excuse me. So what happens is when a facility is inspected by a surveyor, whether it be for a annual inspection or for a complaint investigation, the surveyor is looking to see, is the facility in compliance with federal standards and any standards that exist within the state? And when the surveyor finds that a facility is out of compliance, that's when this matrix comes in. And what this matrix actually does is it gives the surveyor survey or the survey team a way to rate the 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 uh, seriousness of the violation in terms of its scope and its severity and scope means whether um, very few people were affected whether it's something that several people or a number of people were, effect, were, were affected by the, the violation or whether the violation is widespread in the facility. And Eric is, 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 is circling in blue the top there. So that's, so that's the first thing that survey does uh, after they have substantiated, okay, there's a violation here. Okay, so what is the level of the violation? Is it, for instance, uh, one person who had a medication error or are we seeing a pattern of medication errors, for example, uh, in the facility, or is it very widespread? Are we seeing uh, you know, throughout the facility that there are some serious issues? And then the second thing, so that's, that's, the, that, that's the scope. The second thing that the surveyor does is they rate the severity of what the problem is. And that's the first column here. And that goes from the bottom of no actual harm with potential for minimal harm to no actual harm with potential for more than minimal harm. That is not immediate jeopardy. And then the top two are actual harm that is not immediate jeopardy and then immediate jeopardy to residents' health or safety. To come back to this matrix is that the surveyor is again identifying the extent to which residents and the facility were affected and the ex extent to which the problem caused harm. And again, was, whether it was no harm or harm or immediate jeopardy, immediate jeopardy being the highest. This is really important to us and to other, other uh, people who are concerned about the quality of care in nursing homes, because unless the surveyor or the survey team identifies harm or immediate jeopardy, when they do a citation, there's almost no chance that the facility will face any penalty whatsoever for the violation. So conversely, what that, what that tells nursing homes, which are you know, mostly run by uh, you know, corporate you know, organizations, 
for-profit, but even you know the not-for-profits are run in, in quite frequently in a very corporatized manner. What that tells the operator, if they get a no-harm deficiency, it means, yes, you got cited for substandard care or abuse or neglect, but you're really not going to face any penalty whatsoever. And of course, our concern as consumer advocates is that sends the message, it's okay to provide this level of substandard care without having, uh, and, and you won't get penalized. You'll continue to get paid, but you won't get penalized. And as Eric is noting here, 95% of all healthcare citations are cited as not causing either harm or immediate jeopardy to a single resident in the facility. And this has been, since we uh, you know, first identified this in one of our early research studies, this has been pretty um, consistent over the years. We've done a number of studies in the past 15 years, each looking at several years of data, is that um, about 95% of the time when a state uh, surveyor comes in and does substantiate substandard care, they 95% of the time they say it's no harm and therefore the facility essentially gets off scot-free and gets paid again for that level of substandard care, which is very disturbing to us and I think should be disturbing to anyone who's concerned uh, both about resident care and dignity, but also about the uh, integrity of the uh, of the money that we as taxpayers pay to nursing homes. Most nursing home care is paid for by the American people through Medicare and Medicaid. And so are we getting good value if there these citations, these deficiencies are out there and they are not being penalized and we're paying for essentially a lot of substandard care. So it's a, it, it's a very big issue and it's one of the, the biggest goals of our advocacy is to try to improve the identification of when a resident is harmed or when a resident has been put in immediate jeopardy. And just a quick note on that. So harm means that, that there's been harm. And harm includes, it's very important, according to CMS, the Federal um, Oversight Agency, harm includes psychosocial harm. It doesn't have to be that someone's bleeding. It doesn't have to be that someone died. Um, it doesn't have to be a harmful medication error or pressure sore or, or, or a painful fall. It could be psychosocial harm counts as well and is as important. Another really important point to make is that CMS also does not distinguish between people who are um, people who have dementia or you know, Alzheimer's or other forms of dementia and other residents. So for instance, if a resident with dementia is humiliated, uh, put down, uh, maybe yelled at um, by a, a certified nurse aide, or the nurse um, posts pictures of the resident sitting in a diaper on social media. It's not an excuse that that resident has dementia and didn't understand that they were being humiliated. CMS requires that the surveyors use a reasonable person standard. What would a reasonable person in that situation find emotionally harmful or degrading or, or humiliating? 
And so that, that is really important. Again, it's important to note that the rules are really strong. The characterization of these rules is really strong. But as Eric noted when he typed out, 95% of citations are no harm. Unfortunately, what we found and what others have found over the years, many others, government studies, have, of course, as well, have found is that the surveyors do tend to do a very poor job identifying when a resident has been harmed or when they've put, been put into immediate jeopardy of their, um, of their well-being. And so that is a real problem. We, along with the Center for Medicare Advocacy, have a bi-monthly newsletter called the, the Elder Justice No Harm Newsletter, excuse me, Elder Justice No Harm Newsletter. And every two months we publish this and we, we highlight citations that are so-called no harm um, from around the country to allow people and to highlight how these no harm deficiencies, I think for the most part, a reasonable person would say that actually harm did occur here. If a resident, for instance, has been found, as we've seen, to be crying out in pain um, because they um, because they were put into a wheelchair and the wheelchair did not function appropriately and they fell out or their leg was dragging and they were crying, stop, 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 and the, and the, um, the CNA nurse aide didn't stop and they were in pain and that was a citation, but it was a no harm citation. I think a reasonable person would say, okay, that person who was crying out in pain was pretty obviously harmed. And there's something wrong here with the way that our state surveyors across the country are, uh, are identifying the extent to which residents are harmed by substandard care. So this is really, um, and again, just to get back to what residents and families and ombudsmen can do is that uh, when a facility is cited, it's called the, the statement of the deficiencies. The citation statement is available in, by the facility. This facility has to provide it to the public, but it's also available on every state's nursing home website, as well as on the Medicare website, Care Compare. And you can see for your facility what their citations were for the last three years, what the description was of what happened, and also on the state websites and in the facility, what that plan of correction is, what the facility says it's going to do to ensure that that problem has been adequately addressed. And those are powerful things that you can use as a family member, a, a family council, resident, resident council, ombudsman, et cetera, to hold your facility accountable for addressing those issues. Great. And again, we'll post, uh, we'll post a lot of the links to these resources that we mentioned throughout this episode on, on the show notes, uh, whether you're listening on Apple Podcasts or uh, whether you're uh, on Spotify or whether you're on our website at nursing0411.org slash podcasts, those will, will be there. So thanks for answering that. And we're also, uh, we're also going to post some of these on YouTube. Uh, so, so be sure to check out our YouTube page. We will link to that. So we're going to close the episode per tradition with our guest recommendation. Now, this uh, we're going to give you one recommendation today. It can be anything except for our two roles. It can't be the office. Okay. Uh, and, it, and it can't be gin because you've already done that. Who are you going to say that? <laughs> so what, what do you have for, for us? 
Um, so we, we've been watching recently, or we, we um, I'm, I love to eat. Um, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm a foodie, but I definitely, I, 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 I like food a lot and both sweets and, and, and not sweets. And we've been watching, we've always watched the, the Great British Baking Show, uh, which is a lot of fun, but we just found that there is a professional edition of the Great British Baking Show. And so it's these teams of professional um, pastry chefs and each each episode is actually really really interesting. I mean, they make sometimes very interesting chocolates or cakes, et cetera, and they have to do a showpiece with glass. And it's it's high tension, as 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 you could as you could imagine. Sometimes things fall apart and they go south, and sometimes they're good, sometimes they're bad. But it's it's very entertaining. And so um, Eric just in my behalf just told me about this a half hour ago or so. So I had to come up with something quick and unfortunately i haven't had time to read any good novels lately so uh -huh. i am going to go with that recommendation which is uh it's very diverting and if you like food it's very interesting on that note uh this this will close our second edition of what's the difference between in in long-term care so thanks uh, thanks richard for coming on and thanks all for for listening thanks